How about I read the passage while it's getting figured out? Then we're looking at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Hear the word of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enan near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. There is, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, and he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. We pray. Father, we pray that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray again that you would uh, be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Okay, I'm going to try this one more time. Unplugging, replugging. No? Okay. So, pretend that there's a slide up there <laughs> with this question. Have you ever been a, a, bride, a, a best man or a bridesmaid? Have you ever been in a wedding? In other words, a lot of people here have been married, but even if you haven't been married, you might have been a, someone's best man or you might have been someone's maid of honor or matron of honor. And... In that context, what was your greatest concern? Who, who do you want to look good in that situation? Right? You're, if you're the, the best man, you're all about making sure the, the groom has everything together and make sure that he looks good and, and, and is presentable and ready to go. And if you're a bridesmaid, the same thing. I mean, at our church, we have wedding coordinators who, who are fantastic. But any time I do a wedding outside of our church, I actually demand, I tell, I tell a couple, I will not do the wedding until I know that you have a wedding coordinator and I want to talk to that person. And the, the reason is, is because without the wedding coordinator or a good one, it just doesn't happen. Or if it does happen, it's really miserable. And people are constantly pelting the bride or they're constantly pelting the groom with questions. You need someone to make it happen. Now, at the end of the day, as important as that person is, that person is not the couple that's getting married. 
In other words, you need that person. It's really important on one hand. On the other hand, they're really just a means to make something else happen. That's actually more important. That's what we're going to be talking about today. John the Baptist has disciples, and his disciples have forgotten that. They've forgotten their role, and they've forgotten even John the Baptist's role, and that has to be corrected this morning. So before we do that, I wanted to remind you really of the purpose of the book. Remember the purpose of the whole book of John. We've been looking at it for several months now. And the purpose of the book was basically, um, John says, that you might believe and have life in his name. And I wanted to also remind you the very last words in the Gospel of John, the very last thing that John says, which I always thought was interesting, is he says, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So think about that. John says Jesus did so many things and taught so many things that the world couldn't even contain the books that would be written. So what does that mean when you read John's gospel? That means that he has distilled it down to absolutely what we need to know. Absolutely everything in here, every word is important. And so as we consider that, the fact that he revisits John the Baptist again after sort of covering him, you'd think he'd leave him behind. Because in the synoptic gospels, they do. You know, John comes out and then he gets left behind until in Mark later he, we, we see him in prison. But John actually goes back to him. Because remember, up to this point in this gospel, the, the, in chapter 1 it started out and it basically said there was a man named John and he pointed to Jesus. He, pointed, he wasn't the light, but he pointed to the light. And then the, the religious police from Jerusalem came down because John had this big ministry and basically said, remember they asked him, are you the Christ? And he said, no, I'm not the Christ. And they said, are you the Elijah who is to come? Nope, not Elijah either. Are you the prophet like Moses? Nope, nope, nope. On all counts, I'm not the light. And he said to them, um, um, but among you stands one who's, I baptize you with water, but he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and I'm not even worthy to tie his sandal. And then you sort of leave John, and we begin, you see Jesus uh, clearing the temple, you see the wedding at Cana, and then we spent the past two weeks looking at Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, the best that Israel has to offer. And Nicodemus sort of didn't really get it. And now it says, if we're, we're going to look at three things this morning, if you're a note taker. One, the first thing we're going to look at is misplaced zeal. We're going to look at misplaced zeal. We're going to look at the best man's job. And then finally, we're going to look at the bridegroom's proposal. Right? So misplaced zeal, best man's job, bridegroom's proposal. Look at verse 22 and 23. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming to be baptized. So after this, I assume he's talking about after this discussion with Nicodemus, or after the temple clearing, whatever they were doing, they were out baptizing. And what we learn from this is that the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus overlapped at some point. That John just didn't say, oh, Jesus is here and shut down his ministry. He still had a role of pointing people to Jesus. And so that was happening, but also apparently there was a little bit of conflict going on because they were they were had these ministries that were simultaneous and yet look at verse 25 it says now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification 
Now that discussion, remember whenever you see Jew in John's gospel, he's typically talking about the Pharisees, and so we assume this is a Pharisee. And is this an odd conversation? Why were they talking about this? And the answer is no. That basically every sect within Judaism, right? Judaism, we, we tend to think of just Judaism, but really you had different, you had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, you had Zealots, you had all these different kinds of, of sects of Judaism, and they all had various purification rites. They all practiced baptism, believe it or not. Some of them practiced baptism, like when a Gentile was converted, they would be baptized and they would be circumcised, things like that. So is it surprising that even at the very beginning of the church, people were arguing about baptism? They were. I mean, imagine, you know, like it happens all the time. Unfortunately, the first day that I can remember that I needed technology, I had the funniest video I've ever seen in my life I was going to show you today. Sorry. Because remember, imagine a Presbyterian arguing about baptism and saying, no, when you baptize, it needs to, you need to baptize infants and they need to be sprinkled. And a Baptist saying, no, when you baptize people, you need to baptize, you need, they need to be adults and you need to immerse, they need to be full immersion. And then the video I had was of an Orthodox priest who functionally says, hold my beer. And he takes a baby and he's doing the dunk. Have you seen that? The way he baptizes, he takes all baby and he just immerses it and picks it up, immerses it and picks it up, bursts it and picks it up. It's crazy. And the baby, when it comes out, looks traumatized. <laughs> but maybe he doesn't forget his baptism. So issues of baptism go all the way back. What's interesting is I wonder if this Pharisee here was actually goading John's disciples. In other words, if they're talking about different modes of baptism or different modes of ritual purification, and you wonder if he was asking John's disciples, like, what about, how come your master is, is how come more people are going to that guy and your master baptized him? In other words, Rabbi John baptized Rabbi Jesus, and so in the hierarchy of things, you would think that John is more important than Jesus. And John's ministry came before Jesus. And John was the voice crying in the wilderness. Like, what's going on here? I thought your, your rabbi was, was something. I thought he was more important. And his disciples, apparently that gets under their skin because they go right back to John. And they, they don't ask him a question. They accuse him, sort of. Look at verse 26. It says, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Right? This, this, it, it's almost like you know this guy that you sent out. Everyone's going to his church instead of our church now. What are you going to do about it? What's going on here? They're, they're not just giving him information. There's, there's a hint of bitterness here. Like, how come he's more important than you are? And, and at the end of the day, that means how come his disciples are more important than we are? And John has to correct that. Their zeal is misplaced because they have forgotten, apparently, everything that John has said. Which is easy to do. We forget what Jesus has said all the time in church. That's why church, there's so much conflict in churches. If, if we all just remembered what, what about everything we should about the gospel, there'd be no conflict ever, there'd be no questions, if we'd just all be out on mission. And yet, the reason we have to preach every week, the reason we do the Lord's Supper every week, is we need to be reminded. That's what John does next. He reminds them of the best man's job. In verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. 
you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So what does John do? Basically, John begins immediately by reminding him of grace. Right? What John has given is basically a definition of grace. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That, it, that in, in the ministry context, if I have a big ministry, if I have a big church, if I have a big crowd following me, and like in John's case, people were coming from all over to listen to him, he says all of that is from God. Right Now, God uses means and things like that, of course, but at the end of the day, anything that we have, if we have health, it's from God. If we have, if we have hardship, it's from God. Everything we have comes to us. Remember, the catechism says, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. John wants to remind them of grace. Why does he want them to remind them of grace? I think because grace is a breeding ground for humility. Notice, it, this always reminds me that Francis Schaeffer wrote a book years ago, probably in the 70s, called No Little People. It's been one of, it was one of the most influential books in my life, and, and still is at some level. And he, he based it on this parable from Luke, chapter 14, parable of the wedding feast. Many of you will be familiar with it. He says, now he, Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So the point of the parable is basically this, that when you go to a wedding, don't take the most important seat because there's always a chance someone more important than you may show up and the host will have to say, uh, 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 you know, Tommy, you need to go back. Nope, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Yeah, right there, very end. That's where you belong. Right? That would be very shameful. But if you go to the very end and he says, oh, no, 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 you should be up here. That's very honoring. And John is basically saying the same thing. John is taking the lowest position. John is positioning himself in this place of humility, which is interesting because remember what Jesus says about John. Jesus says, among all men, there is none greater than John. Well, why, did, why was John so great? I think it's because John went to the lowest position. John saw himself as nothing more than someone who points to Jesus. I'm not the man. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Elijah. I'm not Moses. I am just a guy. In fact, I'm just the best man to him. That I'm just, I'm John the Baptist to him, right? That I'm the guy, I just point to him. And notice, he says, you yourselves heard me say that I'm not the Christ, that I've been sent before him. And then he tells him this parable about the bridegroom. And he starts with this, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Now he starts the, this, this one sentence parable really. He says the one who is the bride is the bridegroom. That seems like it would be common sense, right? The one who is the bride is the bridegroom. He's the important one and, it, and certainly John had in his mind all of the Old Testament passages 
that talked about God being Israel's husband. The Gog was the bridegroom, and Israel, or God's people, were the bride. You have the call to worship I opened with this morning in Isaiah chapter 62. You have Jeremiah chapter 2. And maybe the most famous example is Hosea. Remember in the book of Hosea. Chapter 2. Remember, remember in the book of Hosea that Israel has become an adulterous nation. They have they've fled from God. And God basically tells Hosea that he wants him to go take a wife of harlotry. A prostitute. He wants him to marry a prostitute. And three times he marries her and three times she runs and three times he goes after her. And finally, remember that at the end she's on the auction block. And God says to Hosea, go buy her again. And I imagine if I was Hosea, Judy and I watched a movie about this the other night, and I, a couple times I paused it, and I said, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, like when you actually see it visualized, and God says to Hosea, go back, go back and purchase her again. And it questions why, why do I have to do this? And God's answer, of course, is that because that's what I do to you. That's what I do for you. All of us are wives of harlotry. All of us are constantly sort of pursuing other things, other gods, and God, our husband, is constantly coming after us. And that's what he, in Hosea, the culmination of that story, he says, um, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my bow. For I will remove the names of the bowels from her mouth, they shall be remembered no more, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the creeping things. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer with grain and wine and oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow, for, I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will have... I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. Remember, that was the names of her children were no mercy... God says in that day, you will have mercy. Um, so John, what does John mean when he says the bride, the, the bridegroom has the bride, or the one who has the bride is the bridegroom? What he's saying, I think, is I'm not that guy. I'm not the one who has promised to betroth you to myself. I'm not the one who can redeem you. I'm not the one who does any of that. The one who can do that is the bridegroom, and that one is Jesus he is the one. Now, what is John's job? What's the best man's job? He tells us, he says, that the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The word there is shosh, shoshbin, and that is basically what we would call a best man. He says that the friend of the bridegroom, that the best man, my, my job is the best man, and in the ancient years, the job of the best man was to be like the wedding coordinator. He was the one who made sure everything happened. He was the one that made sure everything came off without a hitch. He was the primary witness to the wedding. He was the one who made sure that the bride and the groom, that the, that the bride made it to the wedding. So he, everything sort of was on his shoulders. And the best thing that he could hear, as you can imagine, is when he hears the bridegroom say... I do. And at that moment, he's done. And he can relax. 
He can go put his feet up. He can go to the reception and he can be part of the party. But until that moment, he can't. And when that moment happens, it is nothing but joy to him. And John says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. What is he saying? Is He said that I did my job. He's talking to his disciples. Guys, my job was to point everyone to him. And the more people I see going to him, the more I rejoice because that, that's, that was my job. I have one job and I did it. How many people can say that? <laughs> right? John the Baptist can say that. That's amazing. And he said, since I have one job and I did my one job, my joy is now complete. And what is what now? Now all there is to do is he must increase and I must decrease. He becomes bigger and bigger, and I become smaller and smaller. And whenever we forget that, that's when we tend to run into trouble individually, and we tend to run into trouble with that on church level. right? What's, why do celebrity churches, there have been a lot of celebrity churches in the news lately, and why do they always end up in trouble? It's because there's some cele- it's because it's in the name. It's a celebrity-driven church. There's some celebrity who is increasing, 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 and because that person is a sinner, eventually he or she falls and everything crumbles around them. What John is saying that the best thing to do is make Jesus the thing. That it, that that you our job as a church, our job as individuals, is to simply be the best man. It's to point people to Jesus. It's to make sure the 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 introductions happen and then sit back and watch jesus do the work he must increase we must decrease and finally that leads to the the last part of this which is basically verses 31 through 36 is not john the baptist speaking anymore it's probably it's the apostle john writing this letter and he's sort of summarizing everything that we've gotten up to this point and what he's summarizing up to got to this point is basically the culmination and the bottom line of the bridegroom's proposal. Verse 31 says this, it says, He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of earth belongs to earth and speaks in an earthly way, and he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure, And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what is John saying, the the apostle? He's summarizing all this. That's basically saying the reason that, that John is the best man and Jesus is the bridegroom is because Jesus is the Son who has come from above. He is the one that the Father has sent from heaven. He actually is God the Son who has come from heaven and become a, a man to become our husband, to, be, to, to pursue us as a husband would. And he says, he who is of earth belongs to earth. John speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He says, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. And that's sort of a hearkening back to the fact that, that the the, light, the darkness did not want to receive the light, and yet the darkness didn't overcome the light. And that people, many people did not receive the testimony of Jesus. Remember, that's what G- Jesus said to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, your problem isn't that you're not smart enough. Your problem isn't that you're, you're not good enough. And your problem isn't all these things. Your problem is you haven't received my testimony. 
You don't believe that what I have said is true. And what I am saying is that you are desperately wicked, you are separated from God, and I have come because of the love of the Father on your behalf. That whoever would believe in me would have the life of the age to come right now. You don't believe that testimony, and unless you believe the testimony, I can't help you. And he says in verse 33, though, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And that's an interesting commentary on Jesus as it relates to John, because every prophet in the Old Testament, and even John the Baptist, they were given some measure of the Holy Spirit. They were given the Holy Spirit to the extent that they needed the the Holy Spirit upon them to complete the mission that they have been given. Jesus has given the Holy Spirit without measure. Like he didn't, it, it's not given just for this thing or that thing. It is completely with him and upon him. And he says, and the Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. And here's the bottom line at the end of the day. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So John summarizes all of this with, with basically a binary proposal. Right, that Jesus says, "Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe on me, trust me, and your sins will be forgiven. Will you do that or not?" Right, those who believe in the Son, it says, have eternal life. And that doesn't just mean the the life that never ends, but it means the life of the age to come, starting now. That now we begin to taste joy. Now we begin to taste hope. Now we begin to experience the joy of heaven. And he says, whoever doesn't do that, the wrath of God remains on him. Now implicit in that is that the wrath of God remains on all those now. Remember we talked about last week that, that Jesus didn't come to save relatively neutral people. That all of us by nature and by choice are separated and alienated and Jesus comes to save us. That the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And the question is, where are you in that? Have you trusted Jesus? Do you believe in him and therefore have eternal life? Or do you not trust Jesus? Have you not believed in him? Have you not obeyed the Son? And if you haven't obeyed the Son, what what the Son demands in obedience is faith. What is keeping you from it? Is it your goodness? Is it your righteousness? Is it some intellectual thing that you have to get over? Because at the end of the day, the choice is binary. And it's not for good people. In fact, the, m- the more broken and the more simple you are, the, mo- the more easily it seems that people come to Jesus. Let me close with this. I love this story. It's a little bit long. I'm going to read it uh, by David Siemens. He wrote a book called Healing Grace. And He says this, he says, for more than 600 years, Habsburgs exercised political power in Europe, and when Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria died in 1916, his was the last of the extravagant imperial funerals. A processional of dignitaries and elegantly dressed court personages escorted the coffin draped in black and gold imperial colors to the accompaniment of a military band, somber dirges by the light of torches. The cortege descended the stairs of the Capuchin Monastery in Vienna. At the bottom was a great iron door leading to the Habsburg family crypt, and behind the door was Cardinal Ar- the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna. The officer in charge prescribed the ceremony, followed the prescribed ceremony established years before. Open, he cried. Who goes there, responded the Cardinal. We bear the remains of his imperial and apostolic majesty, Franz Joseph I, by the grace of God, Emperor of Austria, King of Hungary, Defender of the Faith, Prince of Bohemia, Moravia, Grand Duke of Lombardy, Venezia, Sturgia, etc., 
the officer continued to list the emperor's 37 titles. We know him not, replied the cardinal. Who goes there? The officer spoke again, this time using a much abbreviated and less ostentatious title reserved for times of expediency. We know him not, the cardinal said again. Who goes there? The officer tried a third time, stripping the emperor of all but the humblest of titles. We bear the body of Prince Joseph, our brother, a sinner like us all. At that, the doors swung open, and France Joseph was admitted. That's what it takes. Jesus isn't looking for your resume. Jesus isn't looking for your goodness. He's not looking for your accomplishments. He's not looking for you to have everything right. He's looking for you to be a sinner. If you're a sinner, you are qualified to have eternal life. You're qualified to believe in the Son. Would you do it today? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we consider um, John the Baptist, that we would, we would emulate him, that we would decrease as Jesus increases. I pray that we would emulate him in his humility. I pray that we would emulate him in his mission, um, that we would point people to Jesus, and that we would make life not about us, but about Christ and what Christ has done for us and in us. In his name we pray, amen and amen.